thank you for your grace and your presence with us this morning. I thank you for your spirit that enlightens our eyes, that renews our minds, transforms our hearts. Father, I just ask that our minds would be, would be renewed to your truth, that we would see and think like you. We'd have such boldness and confidence in who you are, able to boldly come before the throne of grace to receive help at a time of need receive from your your life-giving spirit and I ask that we would become the people that you so desire and that the living word would come forth this morning that does a powerful work within each of us in Jesus name Amen Morning, everyone. I have um, good news to share this morning. The gospel is the the greatest news that I've that I've ever heard, and it has set and is setting me free in my mind and in my soul and in my heart, and I just. I pray this morning that we would have the capacity to receive the living word of God to such a measure that we would grasp a a glimpse of the magnitude of who he is and would be changed. I, um, I was reading in the week and I just came across Psalm 19 and it really struck me, it says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I thought, interesting, the testimony, the witness, the knowledge of God is sure, it's secure, it's steadfast, it's true, it's real, and it makes wise the simple. It's not complicated it makes wise the simple. And so you're not going to hear a lofty sermon this morning or a complicated message, but something that is simple. And yet the richness and the depth is unfathomable, if I can even pronounce that word. I've titled this sermon Confidence in God. And so if you come away with one thing, it's that we can be confident in him. But what you're not going to see is some amazing display of self-confidence. That's not who I am, and I don't believe that's who he is. But it's a confidence that, that is a, it comes from a simplicity of devotion, of, of quietness, of sitting before him. 
It's not a confidence in my own ability to be articulate, but a, a simple confidence in who he is, who he's made me to be, who he's made you to be, and the work that he's doing in our community. And he is doing a work. I've, I've been here for 13 years now. And I'm so thankful to be part of this community. And I think uh, I loved the message last week about being present. And I've been here for 13 years, but it's probably been the last five or six years I think that I've been present here. I've had the opportunity to walk with people like Kirk and, and Greg and the boys at, at Life Group. And most of our learning actually comes outside of a Sunday. I learn probably more through the relationships, through the dramas that go on far out. There's a lot of dramas. Every week there's a new drama. <laughs> because we're people and we're, bro and we're broken. But he's making us whole. And so in that process, there is the relationships are so key. And they allow for this transformational work within us as we just learn to be vulnerable with each other. And so if you have a Bible, um, have a look at 2 Corinthians 3, 4 to 6. So open up there. So starting at verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life beautiful little passage. And this morning I'm just going to use a very simple example that I hope will grab you and enlighten the eyes of your heart to see clearly who God is and the kind of relationship that we can have with him. A confident, true relationship. And so I've got my number one point here. It says confidence in God comes from a true knowledge of who God actually is. In verse 4, it says, such confidence we have through Christ towards God. And so a couple of years ago, um, I started working at New Zealand Post with, with my dad. Um, I was in an entry-level kind of role, and, and dad was more of a senior finance executive. So there was a pretty big gap between where I was and, and where he was. Um, I didn't work directly for him, but I worked for a number of people who were under him, but within the same department. Um, and so it was an interesting environment to be in with Dad, who I had only ever known as Dad, and now he was uh, a work superior uh, to me. And the workplace culture um, at this particular office uh, was quite toxic. There was such fear and anxiety amongst the staff, especially towards the upper-level management. Um, and, but even in that, um, even though Dad was a financial controller, I knew him as Dad, um, and that completely defined the way I approached him in the workplace 
and entirely trumped any other toxic workplace culture of fear uh, that was around there. I had him on uh, Google Chat on the computer. I could just uh, say what's up. His number on speed dial, his extension uh, next to my phone. I could just pop up, put my arm around him uh, to say hi and, and, uh, when he was working at his computer. I think um, I had confident access to him any time, even though he was, by work standards, unapproachable. My workmates, on the other hand, were the opposite, and I was quite uh, struck at their reaction to him. I would have people coming up to me, asking me if it was okay to send Dad an email, um, <laughs> and saying things like, I really need to send your dad an email, but I'm, I'm really worried about what he's going to think, or I'm not sure if this is appropriate, or how's he going to react to, to this news? And I, I just remember thinking, why? Why are you so unconfident at approaching him? And it's simple. They didn't know him. If they knew him, they'd know, actually, there's nothing to fear in approaching him. But I knew, but I knew him, and I knew that that was the case. This, this culture of fear really was quite real in the workplace. The person that I worked with, he had sent an email to a senior manager once, and he had got in big trouble just for sending an email that was part of his job because he was too low on the tree to be able to get in contact with this particular person. So it was a real fear, um, and yet relationship trumps all of that. Their view of dad was defined by fear and insecurity and a lack of knowledge of him, but mine was defined by intimate relationship that overcame all of that. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So point number two, confidence in God comes from intimate relationship with God and not, not from performance for God. So verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. So why could I approach Dad? Was it because I was an exemplary employee, meeting all my performance targets, getting a whole lot of debt for New Zealand Post in from their customers? That was my job. <laughs> Not for a second. Even if I was the best employee on that floor, it wouldn't give me the right to approach him in that way. And my qualification wasn't even a relational qualification. What is there in the relationship that makes me qualified for his love? There's no pride possible in an intimate relationship of that kind. Mum and dad have experienced pooey nappies, wet beds, lust-filled teenage relationships, 
immaturity, arrogance, and everything that comes with growing up. Where is there wiggle room to feel proud in my ability to have a relationship with my father? There's no adequacy, there's no qualification, there's no confidence that I can take in my own actions or my own ability. Philippians 3, verse 3 to 9. If you have um, your Bible, just flick there as well and pop your finger in that page. It says this, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is found, uh, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This is interesting. Thanks, buddy. Paul, he lists his qualifications, his spiritual qualifications. He says, if anyone has reason for confidence, in the flesh, I far more, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, I was at church every single week. Thankfully, we know that church isn't a place that we meet, but who we are. He did all of those spiritual things right. He says, according to the law found blameless, but then that same man can say, yet yeah, I'm the worst of all sinners. Interesting how he can be the worst of all sinners and be found according to the law blameless. When you think of the typology of the workplace culture, no matter how good an employee I was, that did not have one inch of value in approaching dad for an intimate relationship of that kind. So verse five and a half. But our adequacy is from God. If there is any qualification, it's brokenness, it's weakness. And so point number three, confidence in God comes through brokenness of spirit and humility before God. When you know that someone's seen you in your worst state and have continued to pour out undeserved love and affection and devotion towards you, there is such a deep sense of acceptance. 
there is such confidence. But your confidence in yourself has been smashed in a thousand pieces. And the only confidence that remains is his love poured out in your heart. Psalm 51 says, You don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so when I talk about brokenness, I'm talking about humility, about a brokenness of spirit, about realizing our true spiritual condition before God. It's not a matter of doing bad things. Because Paul, like I said, said he could be found blameless according to the law and yet the worst of all sinners. The man had a true revealed knowledge of who he was before God. And that his confidence in God, the source of that confidence was God himself and not his own actions or his own ability. Verse 6. Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And so Paul here seems to transition. And he transitions between just talking about his personal confidence in God and in the interim relationship that he has with God and starts to talk about what this actually looks like in his life. He talks about a new covenant, a new operating system, a new way of approaching God, a new way of serving him, not by the letter, but by the Spirit. Not based on workplace, culture, or tradition, but based on intimate relationship and a knowledge that's been formed through a process of walking with him, of humility. He's gone from operating as a mere employee, driven by the fear and the expectations, the commandments that lead to death, and he is now dancing to a new song. He's motivated and empowered, driven by the love of God within his heart and the power of the Spirit working within him. Just like the operating system of the office was overruled by intimate relationship with my father, we're set free from the law only through a living knowledge of who our father is and the closeness of relationship that we share with him walking by the Spirit. Living under the law is not a matter of a time period. It wasn't a matter of that was them then and this is us now. It's a matter of a, an operating system. It's a way of being. That we can live under the law now even though we are theoretically under the new covenant. How? Because our relationship with God is based on what we do for him as opposed to who we are in him. And that totally changes everything. 
I just got a, a quick example. Uh, I, the guys in the life group would have heard this before, but I, I heard this on a, um, on a history podcast, and it beautifully illustrates how this true knowledge of God leads to the way we then go and, and live our lives. So, Kyle, if you could play that, bro, that would be cool. 1950s, well, or pardon me, 1850s. It would have started about in the 1840s. There was a plantation, let's call it the Robinson Plantation, I forget the actual name of the family, where there were several girls and one son, and the plantation was right on the Mason-Dixon line. The buildings were in the south, in Virginia, and most of the land was there, but some of the land was over into um, Maryland. But the man had slaves. He was a Christian man, had this one son, and his one son got caught up in the, um, um, yeah, abolition, thank you, abolition movement, and kept telling his dad, we ought to set our slaves free. Now the dad was good to the slaves. He had better living quarters than most. And uh, he had uh, a black preacher there that was also a slave, by the way, and had built a little church for them. He was good to them. He even gave them pocket money and that sort of thing. But he said to his son, we could not compete if we paid them. Compete with the other... Uh, plantation owners raising cotton and so on, cotton and corn. But anyway, the man died, the, the daddy died, and soon after that, the young man, Mr. Robinson, called all the people together, the slaves, and told them, I'm working on getting your papers, and all of you are going to have free man papers, where they could prove that they are free blacks. And um, they were very happy about it. And he said, I will hire you. And he gave them an amount of the wages or you can go free. About half of them left once they had their papers and half of them stayed. So he needed some more slaves, quotes. He needed some more workers. So what he would do is go to the slave auction a couple hours south by buggy in Virginia and uh, buy slaves and fill up his quarters. In the meantime, well, what had happened over a longer period of time is he would see some of his former slaves in town and they weren't making it. They were illiterate. They didn't know how to do math. They couldn't read and write and they didn't have many skills. So they weren't making it. So he decided he had a blacksmith and he had the farm. But he hired a, uh, a tailor and um, what was oh and a, and a furniture maker, a cabinet maker, and so he would have four tracks that they could learn trades, and then he hired tutors and began to teach these blacks how to read and write, and it took about three years for them to have enough they could read and write and do basic math, and have some history and geography, so. What he did was set up this whole learning process and he would buy slaves. On the way home, he would tell them, you are free. I did not buy you to own you. 
and he would explain his program. Now, to get to the, the real part of that story, one time when he needed to buy some more slaves to put through his program, had some empty places, he went to the slave auction. The first slave, one of the first slaves up, was a young man of about 21 or 2, stripped to the waist, his back raw with the whip marks, with his wrists tied behind his back, and the, the rope from his wrist was pulled up around his neck twice, and then the master held on to it back there, and he had hobbled his legs so he could only take small steps. And he led him up on the auction block, and John, the slave, swore at the crowd and said, I won't work for anybody. He had also gotten abolitionist fever, and he was not going to work for anybody. And the master said, you can see he's a strong young man, but I have not been able to break his will. And Mr. Robinson decided, I'm going to buy him. And he got him real cheap. When he walked up to pay for him, John saw him coming. And when he got close enough, he spit a big wad of spit right in his face. And his master would have whipped him badly before, but he already knew something was different when Mr. Robinson made no response. He just went around back of him, wiped the spit off his face. No response. He paid for him. He took a hold of the rope at the back of his neck, and in a kindly voice he said, John, let's go home. He decided he's not going to buy any more than just this one. And they walked away outside of the hearing range, outside of hearing range from the crowd. And he said, stop here, John. I'd like to take these ropes off of you. But you'll have to promise me you won't run. If you run, they'll lynch you. But if you go home with me, I will give you your free papers. I did not buy you to be my slave. You don't have to work for me. But I'll tell you about my program on the way home. John could not believe his ears. To make a long story short, he worked for his master for a little over two years. He had a clever mind. In two years, the, the uh, teacher said he's ready to go. The smithy said he wanted to be a blacksmith. He said he can make tools, he can make horseshoes, he can shoe horses. He's ready to hire out to somebody. He's ready to go. So Mr. Robinson walked into the blacksmith shop one morning and he said, John, John was already at work. He said, John, come here. John looked up and said, what's up, Massa? And he said, it's time for you to move on. And John dropped his tools and ran over to him, dropped on his knees and grabbed his legs and said, don't send me away. I want to work for you the rest of my life. Now, when I read that, I did not connect it to being a Christian. I might not have been more than 10 or 11. Thanks, Bart. Sorry, team. <laughs>
Isn't that a beautiful story? And I just think of the attitude of that man who is a slave. And when the very one who comes to set him free is standing in front of him, he does not have eyes or ears to comprehend what it is that the person uh, has for him. He can't see. He's in fear. There's no confidence. There's no knowledge of a saviour. And how through this process of brokenness, he comes to live and operate in a new way. Not based on slavery, not based on expectations and law, but based on love and by the power of what we would call the, the, the spirit of God. And that's what we're invited to, is to be in this place where everything we do and this is verse verse 6 it says who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant we are servants we have things to do but they come from a position of a love for God and a true knowledge of him and what he's done for us and that's been the message I think of the last few years that our being comes from our uh, sorry, our doing comes from our being. The slave became a son. He became a bondservant of God. And it says that the bondservants of God will have his name written on their foreheads. And so Paul, when he goes on in the second half of the chapter, he describes the nature of the two covenants. One he calls a ministry of condemnation and the other a ministry of righteousness. And even those two words, condemnation and righteousness, are so contrasting. And when I think, what does this actually look like in our lives? How do we know if we are walking with God in a confident way. Things like condemnation, pride and arrogance, a performance-based mindset, a fickle relationship that's up one day and down the next, one that's based off fear and guilt and shame. If those things really are in our experience consistently, that's totally okay. But he's called us to a more intimate and a deeper kind of relationship, a relationship that liberates us from ourselves, a knowledge of God that is so empowering and so beautiful that it overcomes our fear and our insecurity. And this is what I discovered in, in the workplace, that through my knowledge of my dad, the toxic culture of fear was completely overcome. And through our knowledge of Christ, our insecurities, our fear, our condemnation, the guilt that we feel, the shame, 
is swallowed up in his love towards us. What about the ministry of righteousness? It's filled with confidence. It's consistent. It's free from fear. It's enjoyable. And so my prayer is that we would have faith to believe in his love towards us. We would capture a glimpse of who he is and that that knowledge of him would be powerful and transforming and it would literally set us free from the anxiety and the fear and the condemnation that we would otherwise walk with. And the reason why I share this is that this is this is my testimony of living in a fearful relationship with God, anxious of how he feels towards me. And it, I, I feel like now I've learned that everything is contained in knowing him. Our behavior, the way we act, is only a reflection of the relationship that we have with him. Everything. Why do we worry about what other people think of us? Because we don't know what he thinks of us. Why do we, all of our fears come out of a lack of knowledge of him? And that's why the gospel is a message of good news that contained within the simple knowledge of him as our father and the relationship that we can share with him is the richness and the depth and the enjoyment of a simple relationship with God. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would enlighten our eyes, that we would see you for who you are in such a powerful and transformational way that we are set free from our pride, our insecurity, our jealousies, that our hearts will be filled with your love, and from that posture, the rest of our lives would flow. We'd be servants and ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter that kills, but of the spirit that gives life. People who have been altered by you. Captivated by your love towards us. And that that attitude would permeate our relationships with each other. would overcome our human nature and fill us with the life and the power and the grace of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.